this morning, we're starting a brand new series. Isn't that exciting? Yes, in the book of Joshua. Joshua. Uh, our approach to, to preaching here at Shore, if you've been around for a while, you'll know that um, the main preaching series we do each year is based on a book of the Bible. Uh, we, we did Hebrews a couple of years ago. We did Mark last year and through to just last week we finished that up. And so uh, that's two books down. We've got 64 to go. So what I figure is I can just keep doing that and then retire and whatever that will be, 2050 something. But, uh, you know, I, I really believe that it, it is the best way of taking a chunk of the Bible, working through it rather than being here, there and everywhere and uh, two, two weeks on this and three weeks on that all the time. We do topical stuff from time to time, but it's so good to have a sustained series where we uh, work our way through and build each week on the last and uh, really get to the end of the year or the end of the series and, and hopefully have, have a better grasp on a good chunk of the Bible. And I believe over time it's the best strategy for building our familiarity with the whole of God's Word as we slowly work our way through. And it also, just so you know, it's good for me because it, it forces me to preach parts of the Bible that otherwise I probably wouldn't. Uh, it, it brings passages to light that often never really get preached, and it, it prevents me from just gravitating towards my own hobby horse topics and pet passages and all that stuff, which us, us preachers are prone to do. So it kind of lets God set the agenda in a really nice way. And it's just great to hear the stories of, you know, we, we, we divide up the text and, and decide what we'll preach when, but there's just particular days when people need to hear certain things and it's nothing other than the spirit of God at work because you know it was planned a long time in advance but God just has this way of speaking to people exactly when and where they need to be spoken to so uh, we've done a couple of books in the New Testament and now we're going to jump back 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 to the Old Testament to this book called Joshua and uh, Joshua is it's an important book I mean every book's important but it's an important book it's a foundational book in the Old Testament uh, it's a transitional book in the in the story of Israel's history. Uh, it's it's got a bit of everything, you know. It, it's uh, got intrigue and and action and 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 battles. I don't think it's got any romance, but uh, you know, we we might be able to find something. But it, it's it, it's got some of the best love stories in the whole Bible in it. The story of Israel crossing the Jordan River. Some of you will be familiar with these. You know the stories you learn in Sunday school. The story of the Israelites marching around Jericho seven times. Uh, the story of Rahab and the spies, the story of the sun standing still in the sky all day. Remember that one? That was the beginning of daylight savings when that happened. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that one eventually too. But it's a fascinating book, uh, Joshua. And uh, the main character, of course, in Joshua is uh, not Joshua, but this covenant-keeping God, this promise-keeping, uh, faithful God who is working out his plan and moving forward his program to redeem humanity. And so Joshua doesn't exist in isolation, it's part of the whole flow in the biblical story. It's an important movement in the whole drama that's going on right through the Bible. So today, what I want to do is not, we're not going to dive into Joshua chapter 1 today. We're going to set the scene. We're, we're in Joshua 1 next week, so come back for that. But today, uh, I want to step back and just situate the book of Joshua in the whole grand sweeping narrative of the Bible uh, because as we plow into this book, it's going to be easy if we're not careful to get bogged down in, in so many details that we lose sight of the, of the wood for the trees. Uh, so we're, we're going to get some context here and just figure out how this book, 
works in the whole biblical canon. And so we won't start in Joshua itself. We're going to start back in Genesis. And you have in your bulletin this morning an outline of today's message. It's got a lot of gaps. Uh, if you're a, if you're a, one of these people that enjoys writing and taking notes and that's how you learn, that's good. You don't have to use it, of course. The, the, the uh, stuff in that will also be on screen, so you'll hopefully get the things you need. Hopefully you've got a pen or grab a pen from someone else, introduce yourself first and take theirs. But, um, you know, that, that might be a way of, of following along and figuring it out. It's a good day to have your Bible in front of you. We're going to be looking at a few different verses as we go through, and the words will be on the screen, but it's good to just turn the pages and, and, and look at these texts as we go through. Sound okay? Everybody ready? Got your stuff? Got your pen, paper, Bible? You're good to go. So we'll start, we'll start in Genesis. Uh, first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. And uh, at the beginning of Genesis 12, we meet this guy called Abraham, who later becomes Abraham. Uh, God gives him an extra syllable in his name, and he becomes Abraham. You probably know him as Abraham, but he began as Abraham. And in the first 11 chapters of the Bible, sin has been wreaking havoc on, on creation, on humanity, uh, individuals and societies and groups and cultures. It's just been spiraling out of control. And finally, in Genesis 12, God begins his answer to the problem of sin. Uh, this is really the beginning of, of God's great rescue plan for humanity. And it begins uh, pretty inconspicuously with this guy named Abraham, who we just met a couple of verses earlier, really. He's, he's no special person, but God appears to him. And he's, he makes some promises to Abraham. Let me read you the first few verses of Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And then God tells Abraham to, to travel to, out of his uh, homeland. He was staying in this place called Haran. And God says, I want you to leave there and go down to this place called Canaan. And when he gets to Canaan, God makes him another promise. So flip down to verse 7 of chapter 12. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So Abraham is now in a, a piece of land, and this was a real land, okay? It's not a, it's, this is not Middle Earth. It's not like through a wardrobe somewhere. This is, it was a real, it is a real piece of land. It's a, it's a strip of land on the coast of the eastern side of the Mediterranean. It's really there. Uh, I've been there once. Uh, it was called Canaan then. It's not called Canaan now. It's, it's basically now the Israeli state, but it was called Canaan, and Abraham ends up there. And God, when he's physically, when Abraham's physically in this land, standing right there on terra firma, God says, I'm going to give you this land. So God makes three promises to Abraham in these early verses. He promises him, firstly, posterity. In other words, your descendants are going to be numerous, Abraham. They're going to be as numerous as the stars in the heavens, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And, and God keeps affirming this promise. He's going to be the father of a great people. Secondly, God promises Abraham relationship. Abraham, your descendants will enjoy with me a special relationship. This is called a covenant. It's like a treaty, but it's more personal. It's like a contract, but it's more personal than that. It's, it's, it's a covenant between two people, two parties who enter into these agreements, these binding agreements together. God makes a covenant with Abraham. 
And it involves this blessing, it involves his posterity, a relationship with God, and thirdly, it involves land. This is what's so critical for the book of Joshua. God promises Abraham way back in Genesis 12 this piece of land, and it's very specific. You can read Genesis, it's got boundaries. God actually says to Abraham, I want you to walk the length and the breadth of the land. I want you to go through it, walk, so Abraham does on foot. It's quite, it's a big piece of land. It's about two thirds the size of New Zealand, not huge comparatively, but you know, it's a decent piece of real estate. And Abraham walks up and down and he walks side to side and God says, this is, I'm going to give it to you. It wasn't, I mean, the, the land was inhabited by a whole bunch of people at this stage. Abraham was a foreigner there. There were all kinds of hostile tribes, but God says, it will be yours. So fast forward then about 250 years. And nothing's happened. God's made these promises to Abraham, but nothing has really happened. Abraham's had plenty of descendants, but now they are slaves in Egypt. They're a slave people. They've got no power. They certainly don't have any, any land. They don't have much of a special relationship with God yet. And God then appears to this guy named Moses. And in Exodus 7, we pick up this promise that God reaffirms to Moses that he'd earlier made to Abram. Sorry, Exodus 3. In Exodus 3, verse, uh, let's pick it up, verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them up from the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. That's not great news because those are all pretty foreign, hostile people groups. Those guys aren't really accommodating to anybody else coming into the land. But God nevertheless says to Moses, the time's come and I'm going to fulfill this promise that he made to Abraham. Moses, you're going to be the one who will lead these people to take possession of this land. So the whole story is of God making good on his word. It's of God keeping his promise and doing exactly what he said he would do. And sure enough, he raises up Moses, and many of you know the story. Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness. They get the law at Mount Sinai. They spend 40 years taking the non-scenic route through the desert. And finally, after 40 years of wandering in the Sinai wilderness, they arrive on the edge of this land. This land that Abraham had been in and walked through and been promised on oath by God, about 300 years later, the Israelites are finally at the edge of this land. Now they are a numerous people. They have entered into a special relationship with God, this covenant. God had made it with Moses at Mount Sinai. And now they were right ready to take possession of the land. But Moses is not able to go in and lead the Israelites into Canaan. He'd earlier been unfaithful to God. And God says, Moses, you're not going to go in. You're not going to set foot in Canaan. Instead, you'll see it from a distance, but it's going to be someone else that actually leads the Israelites across the Jordan to take possession of the land. So you get to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, fifth book in the Bible, and Moses climbs up on this mountain, Mount Nebo, in this region called Moab. 
And he looks out across the land of Canaan and he sees this land that God had promised to Abraham, God had promised again to Moses. And after seeing it, Moses passes away. And the book of Deuteronomy then ends with the mantle of leadership being passed from Moses to Moses' successor, this guy named Yeshua or Joshua. And Joshua has been Moses' protege. He's actually the general of the Israeli army. He's the commander of Israel's forces. And you can go back through Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and, and Joshua's cropped up several times. He's already led Israel into battle plenty of times. There was that incident, some of you have read the story, where Moses holds up his arms while the Israelites are fighting. And as long as his arms are held up, they win. But if he lets his arms down, they lose. And Joshua was the guy that day who led the Israelites into battle while Moses stood on the hill with his arms raised. Joshua went up Mount Sinai with Moses. He got halfway up. Moses went all the way up. So he'd seen some of the power and the glory and the holiness of God. Joshua was one of the, the, the scouts, the spies, who went into the promised land to scout it out. And one of only two that came back with an optimistic report about the Israelites' ability to take the land. And him and Caleb were then promised they would be the only ones of their generation that would actually go in. And now at the end of Deuteronomy, Joshua is commissioned as the new leader of Israel after Moses dies. Let me read you just a couple of verses in Deuteronomy 34, verse 9. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. This is a big theme in Joshua is this continuity between Moses and his successor, Joshua. Joshua picks up the work that Moses began. And this is right where the book of Joshua starts. As soon as Deuteronomy finishes, Joshua snaps into place. Uh, it, it's real historical events that happened about 1200 BC in the late, uh, the late Bronze Age. General Joshua then leads the Israelite army. This is the story of the book. Leads them across the Jordan River, leads them into the land, and the Israelites then undertake this systematic conquest of these various tribes and kingdoms and people groups that are already inhabiting the land, the ones that God had mentioned to Moses, the, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, all of these guys. Uh, slowly, they, they work their way around and, and wage these campaigns against them until the land is finally conquered by Israel. And then Joshua allocates various parts of the land to Israel, to the different tribes of Israel. And the book of Joshua is a transitional book because by the end, Israel, the nation of Israel, is transitioned from being this wandering, nomadic people group without any permanent home to being a unified confederation of tribes that now have their own homelands, they're developing their own agricultural system, they're, they're working the land, and eventually they become a monarchy, but they're established and they're settled. And this begins the whole next period of Israel's journey. As you read the book of Joshua, one thing that's quite clear is that this is not just a military campaign. It's not just a bunch of people going in and conquering another group of people and, and taking possession of the land. This is God fulfilling His promises. This is God keeping His word. This is God doing what He said He would do, making good on that promise He made to Abraham. And, and, and throughout the book and, and through the books that have come earlier, it's pretty clear that this land is God's land. This is important for understanding Joshua. It's not 
the Israelites' land, ultimately, it's God's land. He is the one who owns the land. He has the title deed of this land. And he is generously allowing Israel to become a tenant in the land, to work the land and to stay in the land and to settle in the land. But ultimately, the land is God's. He's giving it as a gift to these people. And throughout the history of God's dealings with Israel in the Old Testament, the land is like a, it's like a fulcrum in the relationship between God and Israel. It's like this hinge on which this relationship between God and His people pivots. This physical land, it's a bit hard for, for us to understand because we don't have that same sense of physical land being important to our faith, but to Israel it was. This piece of real estate on the coast of the Mediterranean was central to their relationship with God. When God makes a covenant with Moses back in Exodus, this covenant includes blessings for obedience and it includes curses for disobedience. And both of these are tied to the land. So God says, if you're faithful, if you keep the covenant, if you do what I'm asking you to do and, and obey these laws I'm laying before you, then things will go well with you in the land. And the land will be for you and it will be hospitable to you and it will produce what you want it to produce and, and your enemies will be kept out of the land. But if you disobey and you break covenant, then the land will turn against you. And it will become your enemy. And eventually your enemies will come into the land and you may even be driven out. These sorts of curses and predictions are right there in these early chapters, these early books of the Bible. And if you know much about the ongoing story of Israel, you know it was much more about the latter than the former. It was much more about Israel wandering away from God and the land eventually becoming something that was hostile to them, not something as it was originally promised which was hospitable and accommodating. And Israel slides further and further away from God. They become more and more disobedient to God, and God increasingly allows their enemies in to the land. They're repetitively conquered and occupied as a people until finally Israel's debauchery reaches such a level where God <clears throat> allows foreign nations to come in and actually take the Israelites out of the land in exile to carry off the best and brightest of Israel into foreign nations. This is what we call the exile. It happened about 586 BC. As the Babylonian army marched in, they, they conquered Jerusalem, they dragged off the Israelites into foreign nations. And when you see the importance of the land in the story of Israel, you, you see how the exile is not just the displacement of a people, it's not just this nation that got conquered by this nation. It's a complete loss of their identity because the land was so central to the covenant. These three promises that God had made to Abraham, posterity, relationship, land, they're so tied together that to rip them apart like that was just the disintegration of the whole covenant. It was this judgment on God and how wayward and wicked his people had become. It was a complete breakdown in God's relationship with his people. That's why there's a whole book of the Bible that's dedicated to lamenting the loss of the land that Israel once possessed, the book of Lamentations. It's not a pick-me-up kind of read. It's pretty depressing, but it expresses this heartfelt, complete loss of identity that Israel experienced because they were no longer in the land. They'd been removed from, from their temple, from the presence of God, from this holy place. They were over here, and this meant that, that God was no longer with them. 
And that exile lasted about 70 years. And finally, the political uh, tides turned and Israel was allowed back in the land. And this is how the Old Testament closes some of those latter uh, prophetic books like Malachi written after Israel comes back in the land. But as you read them, you get the sense that it was all quite anticlimactic. Israel comes back in, but they're still occupied as a people. They're still under the thumb of foreign powers. First the Babylonians, then the Greeks, and then eventually the Romans. And this was the context that Jesus came into. They're still a people who have to answer to other people. They're not free in their own land like God promised them. And the Old Testament ends with this sense that maybe God's promise hasn't finally been fulfilled yet. Maybe there's something greater that's coming. The Israelites had physically been able to return to the land, but God hadn't really returned to them yet. And they weren't yet this free people in their own land, dominant over all other people groups, the light of the world that God had indicated they would be. So there's this sense of anticipation that God's still got another trick up his sleeve here. And this promise about the land, somehow it's still awaiting its final fulfillment. That's the, that's, that, that's the note on which the Old Testament draws to a close. And then you have the, the New Testament opens and, and the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and the arrival on the scene of this Jewish blue-collar worker whose name is also Yeshua. Same Hebrew name. We know him as Jesus. This English translation. But Jesus shared the same name as, as Joshua. And that's no mistake in the whole scheme of what the Bible's trying to teach us. And there's a verse, as the Apostle Paul was writing about Jesus later on, there's a verse in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that says, In Christ, all of God's promises are yes. And we usually think about that verse as, Jesus being the fulfillment of God's promise to, to forgive our sins and give us eternal life. And that's all true. But what about this promise of the land? What about this promise God made about physical land in Canaan that he was going to give to his people? How is that promise fulfilled in Jesus? Well, one of the ways that the land is described in the Old Testament uh, from, from the time that God first promised it, it's described as a place of rest. It's described as the rest that the Israelites would finally receive. God says, I'm going to lead you into your rest, and it will be a rest from wandering in the wilderness. It'll be a rest from all the warfare that you'll have to wage in order to get in there, but finally you'll be there, and this will be your rest. That word keeps cropping up. It's your rest. It's rest. It's rest. And then Jesus comes along. And in Matthew 11, he says some profound words. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And we think, well, you know, that's great. Jesus is just promising us forgiveness of sins, but there's something much deeper that's going on here. Jesus is picking up this promise from the Old Testament, this promise that's tied up with the book of Joshua to bring rest to God's people. And he is saying, I am now that rest. And it becomes clearer, you look in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, and, and you read, the author describes how Joshua didn't lead God's people into their final resting place. That Joshua wasn't able to fulfill that promise completely, that there still remains a rest, the author says. There still remains this, this Shabbat, this Sabbath, this rest for the people of God that's yet to be fulfilled. 
And that rest is then identified with this second Yeshua. This Jesus, He is the one who has come to lead God's people into their final rest, the real rest that God had always intended. And what we discover in the New Testament is that this whole story of Joshua leading the Israelites into the promised land is one big signpost to the second Joshua who would come and finally lead us into the true rest. That rest is not a physical piece of land, but it's the rest that is peace with God. It's the rest from our strivings and our futile attempts to earn favor with God. It's the rest of worrying about our eternity. It's the rest of trying to earn brownie points with God and rest of knowing that we are accepted and loved and completely secure. It's that rest that comprises complete access to God. God making himself totally available to us. It's the end of fears and strivings and the rock-solid security of knowing that we are freed and forgiven and liberated. That's the kind of rest that Jesus came to bring. And Hebrews describes it in that term as rest so that we would see the connection with what has come before, that this whole story of Joshua, it, it was a real historical event, but it was also like a metaphor. It was also like a typology pointing us to Jesus who would come and bring true rest for God's people. And all those of us who experience life in Christ, we now experience that rest. And what that means, here's one of the, one of the, one of the spin-offs of that. And this is probably the most controversial thing I'll say this morning, but there is no longer a particular piece of land, physical land, that is any more holy than any other. Because when you look at the promise and the, and the trajectory that it moves through the Scriptures, it, it, it comes to its fulfillment in Jesus. Not in a physical homeland, a physical piece of real estate. Now, I know that raises a lot of questions about the Israeli state and, and what about all that, and we'll dive into that a little bit more as we go through. But for now, I just want you to see in the big picture that Jesus takes to himself all these promises about the land. And theologically speaking, Jesus is our land. I know that sounds a bit weird, but Jesus is our land. He is our rest. He is our inheritance. He fulfills those promises, not in a physical sense, but in the fullest spiritual sense of bringing us into our true rest with God. So there is now on earth no particular holy land. There was. God certainly set Canaan apart and this area of Israel apart for his purposes. But now all that has been superseded by the person of Jesus. Does that mean we can't support the creation of an Israeli state? Absolutely. It doesn't mean that at all. We can support that. But not as the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Not as the fulfillment of where these promises lead. So that doesn't mean it's wrong for there to be an Israeli state. It simply means that's not what Jesus was talking about when he identified himself as the fulfillment of all these promises. And so Jesus comes and he brings us final rest and he fulfills that promise that God made really way back to Abraham about giving the land. That land ultimately turns out to be Jesus. And there's one final movement in this whole story that I want you to see. That Jesus said when he first began his preaching 
and uh, he preached this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. And in there, there's, there's a bunch of, he talks about blessed are those who are poor, blessed are those who are hungry for righteousness, all of these things. And, and he says one particular thing in there that you can almost just gloss over thinking it's insignificant, but it carries so much weight in the context of these promises. He says in Matthew 5, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It's interesting because it uses the same language that the Old Testament has used about inheritance. But now, you notice Jesus isn't saying, blessed are the meek because they'll inherit a particular piece of land. He says, blessed are the meek because they will inherit the whole earth. And I would argue that this promise that God originally made to Abraham, that was partially fulfilled with Joshua and the land, it doesn't end with Jesus. But it actually points even further forward to a day which is yet to come, to the final new creation, when Jesus will lead us into our final rest. I think that's the final fulfillment of these promises. And on that day, the land will be the whole earth. Not one particular part of it, but this promised holy land will then comprise the entire earth. If you think that's drawing a long bow, consider some other scriptures. Psalm 24, Carl read that out before. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So God has organized this one piece of land to be special uh, in, in, in part of his providence, but ultimately he is the owner of the whole earth. The whole thing is his. And in Romans 8, Paul talks about creation, even the physical creation, groaning for its own liberation from bondage to decay. Creation is longing in some sense, to be freed, to be liberated. It's longing for that day when it is released. And I think the scriptures point us forward toward that day when Jesus will return and he'll come back as the one who will finally lead us across the Jordan, so to speak. And he'll finally wage war against all of the enemies of God who have already been defeated on the cross, but Jesus will return a second time to defeat Satan vanquish sin and evil, defeat the enemies of God, undertake this conquest on our behalf and will then lead us into our final resting place, this new earth, the new heavens and the new earth as the Bible describes it. And then the whole earth is God's holy land and you and I as, as the new Israelites, in a sense, will be led into that land and it's there that we will experience our true and final rest. So you see, we have rest in the present, in a sense that Christ is our inheritance now. He is our land. We find rest in him, rest of peace with God, forgiveness of sins, new life in his kingdom. But we're also waiting for the final fulfillment of that promise when we really experience that true rest. So you see what we're doing, putting Joshua in its largest possible context to see how this promise of the land works itself right out, that it was fulfilled in real time. Joshua is not just a metaphor. It's not just a figure of speech. It really did happen. But it's also this typology. It's also a story that Jesus then, he reenacts it again. That he came as, as the second Joshua to lead his people into the true land of rest. And the background of Joshua helps us understand what Jesus did. And then he'll arrive again one day. 
And finally, he'll lead us into the final rest that we'll experience as the people of God. We had a funeral a couple of weeks ago for one of our dear church members here, Des Stewart, and we sung a couple of hymns at that funeral, and one of them was called Because He Lives. It's got a wonderful verse at the end which talks about how the story of Joshua becomes a signpost towards that glorious day when Jesus finally leads us home. It says, And then one day I'll cross the river and fight life's final war with pain. And then as death gives way to victory, I'll see the lights of glory and I know he lives. You see what that hymn is doing? It's taking the Joshua story and overlaying it onto that final future hope that we have. And it becomes a way of understanding what Jesus yet has in store for us. So I wanted you to see all that this morning so that as we track through this book, you can see where it heads. You can see how it's ultimately pointing to Jesus and ultimately even pointing beyond Jesus' first coming to his, his second coming. Joshua is not just one book in a whole library of books. It's an important foundational moment, a movement within the whole biblical story. And it speaks to us of this promise-keeping God who is faithful to his word and doesn't let his people go, never turns his back on them. And it speaks to us of a God who's with his people through all kinds of adversity, all kinds of challenges that shake their faith to its core and how he does not abandon them, but he leads them on to victory in the midst of that. It's a book that shows us a lot about what true faith really is and how it's a faith that's grounded in the promises of God. And we'll talk more about that next week. And the story of conquest and victory, it's, it's our story. And we need to see it not just as something that happened thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, but as something that's happening today as we follow Jesus into our true rest. We're actually reenacting the story of Joshua in our own lives as we continue to follow Jesus, as he continues to lead us, as we continue to experience more and more of that rest that he describes. What is it to really rest in God? What does that rest look like? And it shapes our lives in the present as we anticipate the best chapter that's yet to come, the final rest, the final land, the whole earth that we'll one day inhabit as God's people. That's the book of Joshua. And we're going to dive next week into chapter 1 and get into the details. So make sure you come back for that. Shall we pray together? God, we thank you for this incredible book. And we're excited about this journey that we're going to take together. I pray you'd equip us for it, Lord. I pray that you would lead us to uh, read this book, to uh, familiarize ourselves with it. God, we thank you that you are the God of history and that all things are in your hands. Yesterday, today, and forever, you are faithful. And we, and we thank you as we've just looked at the big picture this morning, the way we have seen how you are so faithful to your promises. You're so loyal to what you've said you would do. And you've just had the whole thing figured out. And Lord, you've seen the beginning from the end. And now that we can stand here on the other side of Easter and look back and see how this promise was fulfilled at the cross and, and even look forward and see how it's yet to be fulfilled in an even greater way. Father, we're just amazed and we stand in awe of your ability to orchestrate the events of history just as you intend. And it gives us confidence in the present that you're in control that you know exactly what you're doing, that you haven't left us or forsaken us, but you are working out your plan and you're right here with us, moving the story forward. God, we pray that this would be a journey that encourages us. We pray this journey through the book of Joshua would inspire us, it would challenge us, and it would change us, Lord. 
We thank You that You sent Your Son as the true Joshua into the world. And more than anything, we want to follow Him. So we give our lives and hearts to You and we ask You to come and have Your way in us as we work through this book. In Jesus' name, Amen.